This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Yom Kippur. Oh, it's scary. It's like my heart just pounds a little bit faster every time I say that. Um, okay, first of all, we're learning the Fuashnama to Chayayala Bat Elisheba. So, I want to actually begin. Uh, so, the point of this of, of this class is actually to get a deeper understanding of what we do on Yom Kippur. Um, and if I were to ask most people, at least that I know, I would say, "What's the holiest day of the year?" What do you think they'll say? Yom Kippur. No, it's Purim. Ah, very good. So the people that know Zohar will say Purim, but everybody else will say Yom Kippur generally. They'll, they'll, I mean, uh, you know, I had like somebody, you know, I've asked this question before. Sometimes they'll be like Shabbat. Usually, people who don't keep Shabbat will be like, yeah, Shabbat. Uh, and so uh, I asked. So I asked. Um, I asked this question, and and very often it gets Yom Kippur. And then my follow up question is, is but why? So this was like you know like what like what like what do you mean like well why it's like it's like the holiest day it's like so what what makes it so holy what's so special about this day versus everything else I mean obviously it is special but can you explain it this is the the and you guys heard this from me before but in order to know something well you have to be able to explain it very simply so if you really want to know something then imagine a non-Jew comes over to you or somebody who's secular not not the you know not observant and he says or she says can you explain me what this day is about and most people will probably say repentance uh we fast and we feel bad about ourselves which is wrong but we you know with the you know Jewish guilt there's nothing like Jewish guilt right anybody who has a Jewish mother knows what I'm talking about you know like what? You didn't call me? When did you call me? I was like, I just spoke to you 45 minutes ago. He says, yeah, but you went on a train. He says, you know what that means in the subway? And like, Yeah, but Hashem, you know. But the idea is, is people think that it's guilt. It's a time that you're supposed to feel guilty. And it's not, that's, that's not really the purpose of it. I want to actually share with you a, um, a story I heard from Rabbi official Shachter that I thought it really pertains to this uh, um, really well. So uh, as you guys, uh, well, I'm sure you're aware that, you know, in the synagogue, in the shul, before... Special holidays, they sell the kibudim. They sell like, let's say you want to open up the Arona Kodesh, you want to do Ptiha, so they sell it and, and it's like a bidding war, you know, like the people bid and if they want it, you want to make an aliyah, so everybody, this is a way for the, for the shul to also raise some money. So there was one particular shul that was a very, very wealthy guy that was, uh, that was praying in the shul. This was his makom kavua, this is his uh, designated place. Every single year, he would always get the ticha of the nila. So the nila is the, is the last part of the Yom Kippur service. It's the most, uh, you know, the, the holiest part. And he would always bid it for it. And, you know, he was one of those people that, you know, like, they start off the bid at $100. It would be like, you know, like five grand. And uh, if the first time, everyone was like, turning around, like, you know, like, ooh, who's that five grand? But, you know, eventually, after a few years, everybody knew that he gets it. And there was like no question. It was like a routine. He starts off at 100. He says five grand. Everybody just doesn't even bother anymore. And it's going once, going twice. And it's sold for, um, you know, for this, for this wealthy guy for five grand. So one Yom Kippur, they started as regular. They start the bidding. They get up to the Ptichad de Nila. And they start off $100. Again, as usual, like clockwork, he puts up his hand, five grand. And he says five grand going once, going twice. And all of a sudden, there's a guy all the way in the back that he's like uh, 10 grand. And this is the part where everyone's like turning around, they're like, who's bidding against the wealthiest guy in the Zenega? Like, who's even like starting up with him? So, uh, they turn around, they see like this regular secular guy, you know, never, you know, really seen him before in the synagogue. And this wealthy guy is also taken aback. He's like, well, it's like, this, you know, he's never had to bid against this. That's why he always just jumps all the way to, to, to five grand. So he says, so the wealthy guy goes, uh, 15 grand. 
So the guy in the back says, says 20 grand. And there, now, it's a, now it's a bidding war. It's like 20, 25, 30, 40. You get, you're talking, it's getting up to 85 grand uh, that it gets up to. Finally, the wealthy guy says, you know what, this guy wants it so badly. He's willing to spend $85,000 for this. So he says, you know what, I'm not going to bid anymore. 85 grand is going once, going twice, sold to the new guy. So there comes, you know, comes the time for, for the Ptiha of the Nilad. He has to open up the Aron HaKodesh. And so the Gabai over there goes over to him and it says, listen, uh, he goes over to the back. The secular guy says, uh, you bought the, the Ptiha, right? He says, yeah, yeah, He says, all right, you're up. And the secular guy is like, I'm up for what? He's like, go, go do the, go do your thing. He's like, he's like, do what? He's like, you bought it, right? And he's like, yeah, yeah. He's like, go open the Aron HaKodesh. He's like, oh, I, I, I didn't know. He says, and what am I supposed to do when I open it? Am I supposed to take it? He's like, no, no, don't take anything out. He says, just open it. And he gave it, he saw, he realized the guy doesn't know anything about the, what, what's supposed to do. So he says, listen, you go, you open it up, you, you take a few steps back over there, and I'll tell you when to close it. So he goes, he does the whole thing, the whole, uh, the whole, uh, uh, the spiel that he had to do. And after Yom Kippur, the guy goes over to him and he says, listen, I don't understand something. He says, uh, you spent $85,000 for something you don't even know what it is. He says, why would you do that? Why would you spend $85,000 for something you don't know? Uh, so the wealthy guy um, responded. He says, "Listen, says you know this is the first time I'm in a synagogue. I, I really don't know." And he says, "But he says I know that other wealthy guy. He says I know his business, and and one thing I know that he never made a bad deal in his life. And if he was willing to spend eighty grand on something, then I'm willing to spend eighty five on it. <laughs> so is that how we feel, Yom Kippur? Like, why is Yom Kippur holy?" So the guy with the long beard told me it's like a really serious day and like, you know, it's like, why is it, and my neighbor is like super religious, he says this is like a scary day, you know, be is that why, do we know why it's holy? Did we just like, sort of like buy into this and be like, well, everybody religious says that it's holy, so yeah, I guess it's a pretty holy day, it's a big day, it's a very serious day. I get scared sometimes when I can't think I have to eat, oh man, I can't eat for like, you know, 25 hours. So, the, which is the part really that probably affects the people the most. You know, they have to figure out, okay, what if I take a, you know, I need caffeine, I need the coffee, can I put a patch on there? There's like all these uh, products that are coming out. So, let's try to understand the holiness of this day. And, uh, to begin, let's, let's start, you know, there's uh, the Gemara, the Talmud, right? So every single holiday has a sort of Gemara associated with it. An example, you have Rosh Hashanah, Guess what it speaks about? Rosh Hashanah. You have the Gemara of Sukkah. Guess what it speaks about? It speaks about Sukkah. What is the Gemara for Yom Kippur? The Gemara is Yuma. Yuma, the question is, why is it called Yuma in Aramaic means the day? Why don't you call it Yom Kippur like all the other Gemara? Keep the same, you know, vernacular the way that we've been doing the other Gemara. The answer is that this day is so big, it's so holy, that we can't even, we just, it's like the day. This is like big stuff is happening on this day. Like it's beyond our comprehension. It's just like huge stuff are happening on this day. And the Gemara Tanit actually says in 26b, it says, "Yamim tovim Lo hayu yamim tovim There were never good days for the Jewish people, like the the Yom Kippur and the fifteenth of Av. Now, you know the the to, to understand. So like Yom Kippur, huge, big day. So what is so special about this day? We know that uh, there's one day a year where the Satan, you know, has a day off. And that is Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, the Satan, is not in effect. The numerical value of HaSatan is 364, meaning that out of 364 days, out of the 365 days, the Satan is in, is in uh, you know, is in commission. One day he's out of commission, and that is Yom Kippur. There's no, uh, there's no Satan. So, the, um, you know, the Gemara says that in Chagigah, in 16a, it says that there are three things that human beings are like angels and three things that human beings are like animals. Like animals, we, we eat and we drink. We reproduce like animals and we go to the bathroom like animals. How are we like angels? We are, we speak the holy tongue like, like angels. 
we have intelligence like ministering angels, and we walk upright like angels. So the three things like angels and three things like animals. What we're doing on Yom Kippur is we're take if you figure out everything that's animalistic, we're not doing that. We're trying to be just like angels. This is why we dress all in white, uh, at least the men, some women actually also do it. We don't fast because the angels, we fast because the angels don't eat. We stand up a lot because angels, we do everything to become like angels. This is why the Zohar asks, you know, how is it possible that the Kohen Gadol is able to go to the Holy of Holies, the Bet HaMikdash, the Kodesh HaKadashim, on Yom Kippur? Says a, a human being going into the holiest place on the earth, how is it possible? There's no answer because he's not a human at this stage. He's he's like an angel at this stage. We're, we're getting ourselves above the stage of, of being human beings and we're being like angels. The Satan cannot prosecute angels. That is our goal, to become as most angelic-like as possible. So, as uh, many of you know, you know, I think of weird things. This is just like whatever. Uh, um, so one day, uh, it was actually Rosh Hashanah. I was walking to um, to shul, and somebody, you know, you know, you wish, okay, good yom tov, you know, you know, sometimes it's And I was like, why do we wish good yom tov or like you know good job is like why do we say those things? Like why can't we be like you know how the the non Jews they say Happy New Year? Why don't we wish Happy New Year? If you ever realize that we don't say you know Rosh Hashanah Sameach or Shana Sameach. We t- Shana Tova. Yeah, so we say a good, again, the same thing, the same term, a good year. Or we say Shana Tova Umetuka. So we say a good and sweet new year. Why don't we wish people a happy year? Why is it a good? Why is everything always good? So the, the Gemara says in Psachim, page 68b, that says, um, every Yom Tov, it's, every holiday, it's half for God and half for you. So, for example, because we pray, you know, and we learn, and then we eat, and we rest. So we have half of the things we do for spirituality, and half of the things we do for the physical uh, body. And the way that it said is, chatzil Hashem, chatzil is half, half for God, the chatzil Hashem, and half for you. Now, if you look at it, this is something that Vilna Gaon says, so amazing. You have to stay with me with numerical values. Numerical values, we spoke about it before, A equals 1, B equals 2, C equals 3, so on and so forth, comparable to the, um, you know, to the, obviously, the alphabet. So, the numerical value of Yom Tov is 73. So put that number aside, 73. You take, we said, every Yom Tov is chatzil lachem, half for you, and chatzil lachem. You take the numerical value of lachem. Lachem, the numerical value is 90. Half of that is 45. Very good. So you take 45, and then you take chatzil lachem. Lachem is, lamenez is 30 and 26. 30 and 26 is 56. You take half of 56. It's a little bit trickier because you got to carry stuff. But this is, a, uh, this is a 20, this 28. So you take 28 and 45. Again, a little bit of carrying. The, numer- the numerical, you add them together, the numerical value is 73, the same numerical value as Yom Tov. Half for you, half for that. You take that together, that is a Yom Tov. A Yom Tov represents half for you and half for God. The question is, what is half for you on Yom Kippur? We do everything for God on Yom Kippur. We stay, we fast, we go and we pray all day. We go and it's all spirituality. What do we do in, in the physical sense? Answers the Vilna Gon. Um, actually, I think it's Rabbi, Rabbi Yitzhak Kutner. So he says, like this says, what is the name Yom, 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 Yom Kippur? It's Yom Kippur. It's a day like, like Purim. It's referring that it's a day like Purim. So it says, what do we do on Purim? Purim is all for you. We go, we eat, we drink, we give uh, matano, we give things, we give tzedakah. It's everything for the physical body. So it says for, for Purim, it's both, it's one half of the same holiday. For Purim, we do on the physical side. For Yom Kippur, we do on the spiritual side. Together, you have the Chatzil Achem and Chatzil Hashem. So, the Gemara Bachot says like this. The Gemara Bachot, page 17a. Sorry, we're, we're shooting out a lot of Gemara. You gotta stay with me. This is so beautiful. It's amazing. You're gonna enjoy it. If not you, at least I'll enjoy it. So, the, um, you know, the, there was a rabbi that said that, you know, if you go and you speak to a crowd and, um, 
only one person gains from this crowd, it was worth it for you to go out, prepare the speech, and go and say it. And even if that one person is you. So, <laughs> even if I just gain for this, it's also good. Listen to what this Gemara says in Bachot. The, the, there were certain rabbis that they added their own prayers at the end of, at the end of Amidah, at the end of the Shmona Esai, which is again, everybody should do. You should speak to God in your own personal terms. So, what you want, what you need, what any, and just speak to God. So, what did he, what did he say? He says, like this. This is Rabbi Alexandri. He says, his, this is his prayer. He says, you know, I'll, I'll translate in English. It says, you know, God, master of the universe, it is revealed and known before you that we want to perform your will. We do. We want to do mitzvot. Every Jew wants to be a good Jew. No one wants to be a rebellious or bad Jew. He says, but there's two things that are preventing us from being a good Jew. What are those two things? The, the, the Sha'ol Shabbat Isa is the, is the, the yeast in the dough, which is referring to the evil inclination. And Shibud Malchut is the subjugation of the nation. So we want to do your will. We have two things that are blocking us. Number one, the evil inclination, which is, you know, does a good job in blocking us. And then we have the subjugation of the nations. The nations are on top of us. Oh, you can't practice Judaism and this, you know, as, as many of your, of your ancestors can very well, unfortunately, attest to. So, the, what, let's look at these two holidays, Purim and Yom Kippur. Purim, what happened on, on Purim? We destroyed Amalek. We destroyed the subjugation of the nation. So here we took care of that part. And what happens on Yom Kippur? Yom Kippur, we don't have the Satan. It says 364, uh, Satan, the numerical value, the, the Satan has no, is, is not a commission on Yom Kippur. So we have Yom Kippur, is like Yom Purim. Why? Because you have a, both of these days are the days where we take out the thing that prevents us from serving God. The Shibut Malchut, the, the subjugation of the nation, and the Satan. So this is why Rabbi Shimshon Pika says that in the end of days, there is, uh, the, all the holidays are going to cease to exist except for Yom Kippur and Purim. Why specifically this explains Rabbi Shimshon Pika? It says, you know, after these two holidays have a aspect of resurrection in them. Because what happened on Purim? Purim, we were, we were decreed to die. Haman put the stamp on us that we were supposed to be annihilated in one day. So we were physically supposed to die. But then we got saved. So we sort of got a, a physical body. Our physical body got saved. What happens on Yom Kippur? On Yom Kippur, we are, we are, we're full of sins. And we are spiritually dead. But comes Yom Kippur and it sort of revives us. It cleanses us from our sin. So it revives us in the spiritual sense. So we have a, 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 like a, think of it as a triat matim for the physical and for the spiritual. And this is what Yom Kippur and Purim. And hence, after the, after the resurrection, being that these two things also have an aspect of resurrection, also stay after that. So now let's get back to why we call it uh, this, uh, you know, why we say a good Yom Tov and Shana Tovah. So I want to share with you a chidush that my father actually shared with me on Rosh Hashanah. And again, I don't know if Sfaradim pray like this, but, but Ashkenazim, they pray, they say, you know, they say, Chuvat filaut stakam avirin et roa Translation is that, uh, Chuvat is repentance, even though it's bad, uh, translation of it, but let's call it repentance, prayer, and charity remove an evil decree. That, by the way, this is good enough, that, this is like good enough for you just to come today. It's like you want to remove a bad decree, like this is the, this is the formula, how to remove a bad decree. Repent, pray, and give uh, charity, and do, uh, kindness. So, uh, in all the Mahzorim, it says, you know, like, uh, are you guys familiar with, like, the interlinear art school translation where you have the word in Hebrew and right under it you have in English? So, in some Mahzorim over here, it has an explanation what you're supposed to do in Chuvah, right above it, instead of under it, right above it in Hebrew. So, Chuvah, it says Tzom, Tfilah, which is fasting. Um, Tfilah says Kol, which is, like, voice, prayer. And Staka, on top of it, says Mamon, which is money. Now, my father said like this, he says, you know, it's unbelievable, Chidush, listen to this. So if you take the last letters of Tzom, Kol, and Mamon, which is above the Tfilah, Chuvah, Staka, they spell out Milin. Milin means to complain. Many people, after they do Chuvah, they've complained to God, like, God, I don't understand. He says, I want, you want me to do Chuvah, I need some stuff. You know, well, obviously that's why I did Chuvah. I, you know, and I'm here and I'm doing Chuvah. Where is my stuff? Like, why don't I see better in my life? 
So he, they complain. But if you look at the beginning, is is you take those letters tzadik, kuf, and mem. It spells out miketz. Miketz means in the end. It says, you know when you're going to see the good? You're going to see the good in the end. Right now, always, you don't always see the good in life. Some things are difficult. We don't always see the, the, the big picture. So we complain. But, but you know, you know when you're going to see how everything worked out so amazing? You'll see that in the end. This is something what the, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, they went and they asked him. He always used to wish people, Shana tova umetuka. Have a good and sweet new year. So they asked him, he says, what's with the, you know, additional mituka? What's with the sweet new year? So the Lubavitch Rebbe explains and he says, listen, a good year is like, everybody's gonna have a good year. Cause only good can come to you. Everything that God does is only good. This is like, this is like a, you know, a stamp of, of like, I don't know what even what I can say. This is what Judaism represents. Everything that happens to you is obviously for your best. So like to say to have a good year, you're obviously gonna have a good year. But how are you going to know that you have a good year? He says, that's why I, I bless him that you have a sweet year. What is a sweet year? A sweet year is something tangible. When you eat something sweet, you taste it immediately. He says, you see the good right away. He says, I want to wish them that they're going to have a good and sweet new year. Why? Because they're going to feel and they're going to see the good right away. They don't have to wait till the end to make to say that. So maybe this is why we could go back and say why we say good Yom Tov, good Shabbos, you know, and we don't wish happy, we, we're, we're specifically in our, in our vernacular. This is my own Kudus, I may be wrong, but uh, um, I, it, it really... You know, I, I really feel like it's, it's, uh, you know, apropos. We wish people a good year. We wish people, you know, a good Shabbos. Because not only that, obviously everything is for the good, but we, our blessing is that you're going to be able to see it for the good. That you're going to be able to see in your life all the good and the blessing that you don't have to wait so far and you don't have to go through that suffering and be like, why is this happening? But rather you could see everything is really for the best and really for the good. So now we have to come and figure out. Yeah, right. Sweet and happy, uh, good Shabbos. It might, it might catch on. People are look at you like you're crazy. You know, like, especially in New York, like, everything goes according to thing. Like, the second you go a little bit off course, be like, oh, what are, you, what are you doing over here? What's going on over here? I was like, no, no, no. Out of town, it probably would work. Yeah, uh. It's true, because when I walk in the street, I'm like, should I say Shabbat Shalom or Good Shabbat Shalom? <laughs> I know. You can't say the wrong thing. Uh, yeah, it's true. See, then you do the judgment. They're walking, and they're like, well, they're pretty dark. <laughs> you know what? I think I should go with Shabbat Shalom. And then, and then they're like, they see you, and they're like, well, pretty white so they're like and then you're like he's, he's like and then the Svali tells the Ashkenazi good job is the Ashkenazi tells the Svali and everyone's all haywire and you know bedazzled and they just like walk up like what just happened over here but it's funny because I do that also I walk I'm like okay this is like a Shabbat Shalom type of situation over here this is not a and the funny thing is I'm always like wrong in that it's always like you know like good Shabbos you know like in, in the most like Ashkenaz thing and I'm like in the most you know Sephardi is like Shabbat Shalom you know and I'm like, what? What are you doing? So, it's like, what does that even mean? But everybody here is, you know, we know both of them. So, like, everybody's like, you know, it's not like they, they'll be like, I'm, you know, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, what did you just say? You know, like, um, okay, so, what is the purpose of Yom Kippur? It's coming tomorrow. What is the purpose of this day? So, the, uh, you know, we know the theme. The theme of this day is chuba, repentance. We're supposed to, you know, go and repent. Now, what is the the idea behind repentance? People are. This is, you know, unfortunately a very misunderstood area. People think, you know, repentance means that I'm a bad person. I did bad things, and now I have to repent, and I have to go. But you know, you should never feel yourself as a bad person because if you think of yourself as a bad person, then you'll be okay doing bad things because that's what bad people do. Rather, what is repentance? Repentance means chuba means that you didn't live up to your potential. Not like you're bad. You don't think of it as the negative aspect of it. You think of it as a positive aspect of it. Like, look at my potential. Look what I could have accomplished and I didn't accomplish this. And that's your method of going to do a tshuva. 
the the and I think I um I, I explained this once before, but I think uh, you know the idea like I did say this right. Wow, that's awesome. So only one person. No. <laughs> the um th- this is the idea behind repentance. This is the way that we're supposed to uh, we're supposed to feel. So now we're here like in this um. You know, actually, let's let's first start with this. I want to share with you a, a story, and this is a story. You have to think of it as a scenario. When when I wrote the story, it was really meant for a guy class. So I'm gonna just say it as because the whole switcheroo thing is just gonna mess it over. So just think of it think of it as a, from a guy perspective. So there's a man that he wants to. Um, you know, his lifelong dream is to join the FBI. You know, like, you know, like, you know, those people who are like young, you know, like, what do you want to be? I'm a policeman. They're like, oh, that's cute. But he was, his, that his answer was like through college. Like, yeah, he was like, I still want to be a policeman. I still want to be a, you know, FBI, whatever it is. So, and that was his like, his like, his whole life was focused about one goal. That's getting into the FBI. That was his goal. So he goes and he excels in school and then he goes and he takes the exams and he tries to pull on the connection. Somehow, miraculously, because it's very hard to get in, he was able to get into the FBI. And he's working like a dog because he wants to make sure that he aces everything. For one year, he works nonstop. His job is his life. Then suddenly, um, you know, into his department walks in, you know, the chief of the CIA. You know, you know, like, this is like, it's like, it's like, what is this guy doing up here? This is like, you know, like, if the FBI is the Malachim, you know, CIA, that's like the God level of, you know, the Havdil Elif Avdalot, right? I'm saying, but, you know, like, this is like, you know, a completely different level. So the second, you know, that everyone's like, was like, oh, someone's in trouble. Like, what is he doing in our department? And the CIA, you know, the chief of the CIA walks straight up to the, uh, you know, to the department head and they have a meeting. And everyone's peeking in to see, like, what are they talking about? Like, what is going on? It's, like, big stuff. And every so often, you know, the, the chief of the CIA and, the, and this guy and the head of the department, they point and they look over at this guy. And now this guy's he's like, he's like, why? He's like, why are they looking at me? You know, like, it's never a good sign when people are closed behind closed doors and, they, you know, they keep on looking at you. You know, in general, I've met people that, um, you know, there are certain people that they think that everyone's always talking about them. So, uh, you know, it's like, imagine when someone's looking at you behind closed doors and sometimes even, like, pointing, you know, like, what are they feeling? He's like, what did I do? And he starts racking his brain through all the cases that he did. He says, did I mess up in something? What did I do? And he goes through every single case he did. He says, no, I, I worked so hard and I aced everything. He he couldn't figure out. Meanwhile, he's sweating, he's sweating, and um, after what it seems like eternity, the department head go- comes out and he calls him into the office. Now he feels like he's gonna faint, you know. So he's like shaking over here. He went through like the rigorous training to become an FBI, you know. But like this, you know, he's like he's like, what's going on over here? He walks in there. They say, close the door behind you. He's like, that's it. You know, I'm getting fired. He's like, it's okay. That's fine. You know, like, he's like thinking, what is he going to do? And um, the the chief of the CIA goes over to him and says, did you work on the, this case? And he's like, he's like, yeah. He's like, oh, it's like, I think I did a lot. I did a good job. In his mind, he's like, I thought I did a great job in that case. And there's like a long pause. And the chief of the CIA says, you know, he says, when I, when I saw this case, I was so impressed with the work that you did. He says, how would you like to come to work for me? And, and now he really faints. He's like, oh, you know, pulls out another. And he's like, he's like, you know, uh, he's like, he's like, he's like, he's like, yes, <laughs> you know, like, like, we're, we're, you know, you know, ask what I have to do. It's like, what, I'm not before. It's fine. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'll do it. And so they, the chief of the CIA takes him to his department. He starts him in a, in a low, uh, you know, in a low department. Uh, but everybody in this department, they had to work like 20 years in other departments in order to just get to this department that this little, you know, Pisher just got in like one year. So obviously nobody liked him. And they were all constantly like putting him down, like making him go get coffee. Like they were trying to like bring him down because they were jealous of how this guy jumped so far so fast. So every time the CIA, the, the, 
the chief of the CIA came in and he went and he saw that he's doing some menial job. He says, well, who gave you this, this job? Because there's a point, he, he's like, I don't know, they told me to do this, you know, and he listens, whatever they do. He goes, he's like, no, 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 stop doing that. And he says, who, he says, point out to me who, you know, who told you to do this. So, you know, he's like, hold the chief of the CIA. And says, this man told me to, you know, to do it. And he's like, he's like, you're demoted. Like, no even questions as you don't mess with this guy. And soon everybody got to the realizing that, like, you don't, this is like the CIA's little puppy. You know, the chief of the CIA's puppy. You don't mess with this guy. Whatever, you know, like, and, and you know, like, everybody came to that understanding. And uh, slowly, after a short while, the chief of the CIA always kept uh, kept an eye on him. And he kept on promoting him. You know, kept slowly, slowly kept on promoting him. And eventually... He promoted him into to foreign intelligence, and he had to go through rigorous training just for foreign intelligence. You had to, um, you know, the the besides the tactical training, you also also had to have this this phenomenal psychological training that you would have to like be able to go into someone's home, um, make them feel within like two minutes that you're their best friend, be able to figure out where they keep things that you would need, and extract it all under five minutes. So it's not like just getting into the system it's also playing that mind game it's like he had to like had this like high crazy high level of training and um and while he was in that department he you know aced it as well he did really good at, at his work and it wasn't before long that the chief of the cia promoted him to to the department head of the foreign intelligence which is like you know that's a very very high position so he goes and uh, for for a few years, he goes over here, and like the the chief of the CIA is like, this is like his his buddy, and this guy feels like he owes everything to this guy. He's like, he would have been working in the FBI, same department, if this guy didn't come and, and do anything. He knows that for sure. Like he, everything that he has right now, he owes to this uh, to to this chief. So one day, it's like it's like you're talking about like maybe. 12 years later, since it, since he started, the chief of the CIA comes over to him and he says, listen, he says, um, I have a personal favor that I need to ask you. Well, what do you think he's going to do? He says, like, anything. He's like, who do you want me to kill? Like, uh, whatever do you want. Like, it doesn't matter. He says, I owe you my life. Everything that you want is going to happen. Whatever you want. So the, 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 you know, the chief of the CIA goes over to him and he says, listen, he says, you know, I am, you know, married for, for quite some time and, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I really love my wife. But he says, you know, I'm away a lot on business, and you know, every time I come home, something feels off. Like things are misplaced, you know, you know, it just feels off, you know. And she's like, I don't know what's going on with my wife, and you know. And then he saw for the first time in his in his entire career of knowing the chief, he saw a little tear fall down the the chief of the CIA's uh, thing, and he's like, he's like, uh, you know, he says, I love her so much, but I need to know what's going on when I'm out. He's like, I I really feel that something is going on when I'm away. And I need to find out. And then he like, you know, he takes away the tear, and then all of a sudden he becomes like the Hulk, the you know, the CIA. And he's like, and if I find out that something is going on, he's like, he's like, I, I pity the fool who's like, you know, who's, you know, that is. So that the like, you know, the guy who was sitting over there who got promoted, he's like, he's like, he's like, I've never seen such emotions from this, uh, you know, from the GDCA. So he's like, yeah, you know, what do you want us to do? So he says, uh, he says, uh, we're going to plan this event and this uh, charity event that's going to be in my house. And I'm going to tell my wife that I'm going out again on business. I'm not going to be able to be in the, you know, in the event. I want you to go in there before the event and set up security. I want the highest tech, you know, infrared, extra, whatever we have, the top of the line, I want all over my house. I want to see everything. And uh, he's like, fine, no problem. You know, he goes and he sets up with his team while the house is empty. He sets up the entire house. He bugs it, wires it, everything from A to Z. They have eyes and ears on this entire house. And they, they you know, the night before the... Um, this, you know, the, the charity event, the chief of the CIA calls in and says, listen, he says, I want you inside. 
and he says, fine, you know, whatever you want. He says, I'm giving you an alias, you're a wealthy donor, and you're going in there. He never met the, the you know, the wife of the CIA, so it was never, wasn't suspicious. And he comes in as a, you know, multimillionaire giving, wanting to give a large donation. So, he walks in, and he's greeted first by the wife, and the first thing he's like, he's like, wow, he's like, he's like, she's much younger than the, than the, you know, chief of the CIA. And then the, you know, he's like, he's like, hi, nice to meet you, and you know, does a greeting, and all of a sudden, and then she gives him like a little bit of a, little bit of a extra longer greeting. He's like, and he's like, oh, he's like, he's like, I can see where this is. I see, I, you know, I was like, I can see why the chief is is afraid of that. Give him like an extra long smile, maybe a little twitch in the eye, uh, and then you know, so he goes around and he scans, you know, the whole room, and he's you know keeping his distance, always keeping an eye on the on the wife, see what's what's going on. And you know, you know, the party goes on. It's getting a little bit later, and suddenly he turns around and he sees that he can't find the wife, and now he's like, he's like, oh no, where is she? He's like, what's going on? So he quickly scans the entire room and he sees somebody walking up the stairs. All he saw was the shoes, just like a, someone's shoe walking in. Part of the CIA training is you come in for his, at least his department. You would come in and you right away have to know like what type of hat everybody's wearing, how many male, how many females, what are their shoes, are their heels, are they this, are they running shoes. He knew everything. So even subconsciously, he already saw that. He's like, okay, that's her shoe. I know that. And uh, he quickly runs up, you know, behind, uh, you know, up the stairs, tries to, you know, stealthily, you know, follow her. And he walks up, and he's, you know, like, now it's like everything is, like, dark upstairs, and it's, like, long room, uh, long uh, hallway full of doors, and he's, like, where am I supposed to, like, how am I supposed to find her now? And then he sees, like, you know, like, a door, like, slightly closed, so he figures that she ran in there. So he quickly, walk, you know, runs in to a uh, seat, and the room is pitch black, so he, you know, gets into his CIA mode, goes on the side, and all of a sudden, he hears a door close behind him, like, click. And, uh, you know, and a light opens up, and who's standing there? The wife of the of the cia and you know she walks up over to him and he's you know he's backing up he's like he's like oh is, is this a bathroom you know like, like i'm looking for and she's like she's like you know i i've noticed that you've been you know looking at me all all night and she's like i've been looking at you too all night he's and he's like he and he's like he's backing up he sees where this is going he's like you know aren't you married so her response was i won't tell if you won't tell and as he's backing up he looks up and he sees the camera that he put right over there. Now, she was a very pretty young woman, whatever it is that you want in your imagination to run. And if I stop the story right there, is anybody in their right mind, by the chief of the CIA sitting in the Con Edison van right around the corner, and, uh, um, you know, and anybody in their right mind, is it even a test? It'll be like, well, should I do this? Assuming he's not Jewish and whatever, and it's not, you know, he doesn't think like, like you know, like it's a sin and things like that. As anybody in the right mind would do that sin, I'd be like, no, because, well, really for like three reasons. Number one, the husband is looking through the feed, like, right now, like, he sees the, the camera. Number two, this is no ordinary husband. This is a guy who has a lot of resources, that if he wants you gone, you're gone. And number three, you owe this person everything. Everything that this person, you, you know, that you have is all due thanks to this person. Now, no, it would never be even a, a you know, I guess Gamata would be a Havami. It would never be a moment that would come into your mind to do this sin. It would, like, this is ridiculous. I would never do such a thing. Now, what, let's say, God forbid, this person went and he did this sin. And, you know, I'm not going to go through the whole story because we don't have the time to go through that whole, you know, juicy details of what's going on and which, you know, terrorist organization is his body going to be found in. But let's just say that the chief of the CIA doesn't, you know, kill him to pieces and give, feed him to the, you know, to the tigers in the dungeons of CIA. Um, let's say he doesn't do that. Is there any way that he could ever repair the damage that he did to this? You would think, like, no way. Are you kidding me? Like, this guy, he said, he gave, I gave you everything. I put you in this position and you did this behind, you did this, like, not even behind my back, in front of my face. He says, how do you do that? 
So we have to think, we're this person, and the chief of the CIA, think of it as God. God gives us everything. God sees everything. He puts a camera on every single aspect. We know that he looks at everything. And not only that, it's God. Like, he could take care of you in both aspects of it. So we think about it. If we sin, how could we ever actually go and do tshuva? Like, we actually just, like, cheated, so to speak, you know, uh, you know, on, you know, on God. God told us to do this, and we're not listening to him. How is it possible? How does tshuva work? How is it, if you think of it as that CIA, can you ever repair that relationship? If not, then how does it work in, in the relationship between us and God? How are we able to repair that? How does Chuba work? So I want to share with you something from Abshim Shempikas. So amazing, so fundamental to Chuba that, that even I, before I, I learned this, I was like completely, you know, different understanding of what Yom Kippur was supposed to be like. So one of the, um, I guess, most common things that we say on Yom Kippur is vidui, confession. We actually say it ten times. And if you think about it, it's like, what's up with all the rehashing? It's like you say the same things again and again. It's like, imagine someone comes over to you and be like, remember that, uh, I don't know, the dress that I burned that I borrowed from you? And be like, yeah, uh, I'm really sorry. You know, I really feel bad. Do you forgive me? Yeah, don't worry about it. It's fine. Uh, okay, good, thank you. Three hours later, you come back to her again and be like, hey, what's up? You remember that dress that I borrowed from you and that I burnt? Be like, yeah, you just told me that. Yeah, he's like, it's like, do you forgive me? I'm like, yeah. Cool, cool. Three hours later. Hey, um, you know that dress that I borrowed? I'm like, this is what we're doing. Like, every three hours we're going to God and we're saying the same things again and again. Be like, hey, remember that sin that I did that I really feel bad about? Um, do you forgive me? And God says, Yom Kippur, fine. You're really serious. You do the Shabbat, three things. You know, machulah. You know, forgiven. And we come back again and be like, hey, it's me again. Um, are you sure? Like, like, why? What's with the reacting? Ten times we do it. So what? And this is one of the most important aspects of the of of Yom Kippur. We say we do it, we do it, we do it, we do it ten times. Do we know what we're saying? By the way, this is just a side point. I strongly recommend everybody to buy the. There's an art scroll. Um, I think they even have pathway to prayer on this that it explains these. You know what you're saying. You're saying I'm sorry for certain things I did. Know what you're talking about, because then if you say, if you, even if you just read the English translation, I mean, like we have been rebellious, you know, like especially if you're using like art school language, where it's like, you know, like you have to get a theosaurus and be like, what does he mean right over here with this? But but let's say like you know you understand you know what is going on, rebellious and be like, ah, I don't know, was I really rebellious? And then you and then there's in the certain art schools, especially in the back of it, they explain like a few sentences on what that means. So originally you'd be like, no, I was never rebellious, but then you read that sentence and be like, oh. Oh yeah, yeah, I did do that. You know, and then you go to the next line and be like, "Well, you stole." Be like, oh, "I never stole." And you go, you start reading about it. Be like, "Oh well, yeah, well maybe." You know, it's so, like it means more. You actually have more emotion into it. You actually know what you're saying, and you actually like it, it's like it's not like you're just saying the words. You're actually meaning about it. So I do recommend everybody to go and if, you know, it's even better to read it beforehand, so you don't just walk in blind. You know a little bit about what you're saying. And um, art school, art school, and Yom Kippur. I, I like the interlinear one is, is uh, um, you know, the one that I use. And you go all the way to the back, and it has everything, and it, and it just tells you. So even, you know, like I can understand Hebrew, I can read Hebrew, but like it gives you a different meaning when you actually read a little bit about it. You understand what you're saying. It it, hurt, it, it changes, you know, you say it with more emotion. So question number one is, so we say vidui, we say confession ten times. The question is, why do we say it with prayer? Like why is, is confession associated together with prayer? Let us just like, Confess in the corner, whatever it is, do the, do the vidui. Why do we associate it with, with, we actually do it, Beshmon Asa. Why, why do we associate it with prayer? That's question number one. Question number two is the, um, in order to do the mitzvah of tshuva, so there is three aspects of tshuva. Number one, you have to regret it. 
you have to regret the sin. Again, that's not feeling bad about it. Regret is the part where you feel that you didn't live up to your potential. Shame, you're supposed to feel shame. You're supposed to feel shameful of what you did because that's going to prevent you from a- actually doing it again. Uh, but you're, the, the point is you're regretting it again, so you won't do it again. That's number one. Number two, you also confess. You have to confess to God this thing. Confession has to be verbal. It has to be verbal. It has to, doesn't, nobody else has to hear you, but you, you should hear yourself, and, and this is between you and God, obviously, but it has to come out of your mouth. And number three is obviously not to do the sin anymore. So, but the question is, I want to focus number two, why does confession have to be verbal? Why can't it just be in the heart? Why can't I just, you know, be really sincere in a regret? Well, why is that not sufficient? That's question number two. Question number three, there, you know, we preface the, the vidui with, with this, and I'll read it in English, uh, with something that doesn't really make that much sense. This is how we start the vidui. I'm going to read it to uh, the exact uh, translation in English. Let our prayers come before you, and don't ignore our supplication. If we are not so brazen and stubborn as to say before you, we are righteous and have not sinned, in truth, we and our fathers have sinned. So basically what we're saying, we're like, we're coming to you, God, um, but not because we didn't sin, we actually sinned, and that's why we're coming to you, because our, us and our fathers sinned. Be like, you're coming to do confession. Well, yes, obviously you sinned. That's what you're here for. Like, what's the thing like, hey, by the way, it, I, you know, it's not like I'm not coming here because I didn't sin. I'm coming, you're coming to say I'm sorry for something. It's like, you come over to someone and say like, hey, um, I'm coming not to, to apologize for what I did because I did something against you. I'm like, yes, that's why you're coming. Like, what, this prayer doesn't make any sense. Why are we saying this? That's question number three. So, there's a medrash in Yalkut Shimoni that says uh, like this. There is um, there's 70 facets to the Torah. There's 70 different parts aspects of the Torah. So one aspect of it is wisdom. Say and, and just bear with me when you know this. So they they went and they asked wisdom, which means that they asked the facet of wisdom in the Torah. It says what is the punishment for someone who does who does sins, who's a sinner? So the wisdom responded, evil pursues him and attaches him forever and ever, which means there's no hope that he's done. So they went and they asked prophecy. Also, another aspect of, of the 70 aspects of the Torah. And they, the prophecy said that uh, the soul that sins shall die. Again, no hope. They asked Torah. Again, another aspect. It says what, he says, the Torah says, let him bring a guilt offering and be atoned. And then they went and they asked Kodesh Baruch Hu. This is also another aspect of the Torah. And, and Hashem said, let him do tshuva and be atoned. So, says Rabbi Shimshim Pink is like this. It says, you know, we think that, you know what tshuva is when we repent? We go, we say, I'm sorry, we, you know, regret, and the sorry is the confession, we regret, and we don't do it again, and then that equals tshuva. That doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Tshuva is not that you just do these three things and that, that automatically you do tshuva. Tshuva means you do these three things, and then tshuva doesn't help until God actually goes and says, fine, it's, it's erased. Which means is, these three things is just you coming to say like, hey, I take this very seriously, I mean it, um, please forgive me. And then the tshuva actually comes into effect only when God comes in and, and He cleanses it. So the idea behind this is that the nature of vidui, the nature of confession, is a direct relationship between you and God. Now, this is why we do it specifically in prayer. What better time do you have connecting to God during your prayer? You're, you know, whenever whoever needs to get married, when you get married, how do you connect to your spouse? You connect him through, you know, you know, talking and getting the, the you, you're sharing your feelings, he's sharing his feelings, and you, you know, you grow together and emotional. It's the talking, the close communication that you, um, that you talk with, with your spouse that brings you, that brings you closer. When we're in tefillah, we have a very close connection to God. And that's what we're doing on Vidui. We're, we're getting a close connection for God. And in fact, Rav Shem says that Vidui, confession doesn't necessarily mean have to do anything with sins. There's something called Vidui Masot, which uh, um, you, you do Vidui 
for certain, it's like it's like this type of supplication that you say for when you're when you're separating the the tithes on the on the product, produce of the field. So the uh, the essence of vidu of confession is not the whole repentance. It's actually getting close to God, having this communication, this closeness with God. And this is why there's something very interesting that it, it says in the in the midrash that you know you would think that you could only do vidu, you could only do confession only in Israel. And the question is why? Why can't well, I can't do Chabah in, in you know in America? Only Israel can do Chabah? And the answer is because Vidui is not just having this this Chubah. Vidui is having a close connection to God. You might think, you know why I can have a close connection to God? In Israel, near the, the near the Holy of Holies, near the holiest place in the in, you know in the world, that's where I'll be able to have a close connection to God. Comes to the Torah and says, No, 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 you could do it anywhere because the, the, the you know this is a chidush that you don't have to be there. Because what is Vidui? Confession is getting close to God. It's getting this closeness, this dvekut, this connection to God. This is the point point of, of what's going on on Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, where we're going, yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, where, where Yom Kippur, what we're doing is we're creating a, real, and this is the most important part. This, you know what we're doing, Yom Kippur? We're creating a close relationship between us and God. We're getting close to, uh, between us and God. That's what we're doing. What happens is like this. You know, um, I guess you can think of it like this. God wants to always give you good. Just come and, you know, thing. And, uh, what we're, unfortunately, with our sins, there's something called klipot, that we sort of block, think of it as like a shell that's going around you. So, the good that wants to, like, God is like pour, think of it as, as like God pouring good, but you have this umbrella that you can't actually get the good. So, when you're doing tshuva, you're removing this, this umbrella, you're removing this impurity, this klipot, and you're gonna be able to accept that good. You'll get this closer connection to God. You're removing the sins, and you're getting a close connection. The whole point of Yom Kippur is getting that close connection to God, getting this veku to God. And how do you do that? Through speaking, through tefillah. And this is why it's so important that we have tefillah, specifically when we speak about on, um, on, on Yom Kippur. The, and this is what, you know, the Rav da, also explains like this. It says, you know, Malachi, it says, God says, return to me and I will return to you. Because you could return to me, but if I don't return to you, if I don't bring you close to me, it's not going to help. You're going to still say it the same way. So we pray to God. It's a time of prayer. We pray to God that I'm going to return to you and you should return uh, to, uh, to me. I want to share with you another, uh, you know, a story to, to, to say this. I'm pretty sure I said this story before, um, and you know, so you'll tell me if you didn't. But it's such a strong impact on it. Maybe I'll change a little bit of details. Surprise you um, if you if you heard this. But I'm pretty sure this. I said the story. Why do I pretty sure I said the story? Because this story is like so awesome. It's like it's like so amazing that there's no chance I wouldn't have said it. You know, so like that. That's where my that's that's where my faith foundation is. That I actually said the story before. So now, the um, there was once a man who. Um, you know, who, he took, you know, he was a very wealthy man, but he wasn't blessed with any children. And, you know, finally he went and, you know, after many years of treatments, of prayers, and that finally, like 20 years later, he was blessed with a child. So, you know, like, when someone doesn't have a child, and then they, if after a long time, they appreciate that child much more. As opposed to, you know, you have a 16-year-old girl, you know, unfortunately gets knocked up, um, in public school, uh, gotta throw that in, uh, that, uh, you know, that, you know, Okay, hopefully she'll love the child, but you know, more times than not, they're like, you know, not happy with the whole situation. But like after 20 years of not having a child, you, you cherish that child. So this family really cherished that child, the, the husband and the wife. The husband, whatever, was so involved in business that he couldn't really, you know, focus all on the, you know, on the child. And it was really raised by, by his mother. He was really focused on the business. As this child grew older, 
the father introduced him into the business, and uh, you know, eventually he he was uh, getting ready. It was only they only had one child. They eventually went and took over the business, and uh, this this child, which is now a man running the business, he went and he got married, and he also had a very hard time with uh, you know with with having a with having a child. Again, the you know they had a lot of money, so they're running from this uh, you know specialist or this specialist, and finally, after many years, they were also blessed with a child, a little baby boy. Now, this father was also, just like his father, was very involved in the business, so he couldn't raise the child. And the grandfather of this boy, you know, realized he missed out on so much of his son's upbringing. He's like, you know what? He's like, you just had a grandson. I'm retiring. He says, you take over the business. I want to spend some time with my grandson. He was getting older, and he just didn't need the money. You know, so he's like, you take over the business. I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to take care of of, uh, you know, of the child. And he, he, like, basically raised the child. Him, you know, and his, and his daughter-in-law, they, you know, and the, the child and the grandfather had such a close connection. It was like, literally like, you know, like child and dad. So, the, you know, when the child was about seven years old, uh, the, you know, the closest person in the world to him was his grandfather. And unfortunately, his grandfather got sick very quickly and he passed away. And the child took it very hard. It was like very, he felt like he lost his, his parent. So, you know, it took him a while, but eventually, you know, forgot about it, and he kept on going. Two years go by, and suddenly the child starts complaining of, of stomach aches. So, like any parent, you know, depending on which place you come from in the world, there's all these homeopathic things. You gotta eat toast, that's why you need to do it. No bananas, sleep on your stomach, um, uh, and look at the sun for like four seconds a day. You know, like whatever it is, that, you know, the part that they, and they tried all these things, didn't work. Tried Tylenol, didn't work. So they brought him to the, um, to the doctor. What does the doctor say when he doesn't know anything? It's a virus. Don't worry about it, right? So uh, that's generally what they say. It's a virus. Don't worry about it. Or, you know, if, if they're the teething age, they're like, no, it's teething. Um, so they said it's a virus, but two weeks go by, three weeks go by, and it gets worse. So much so that the kid starts projectile vomiting. So they realize this is not just a virus. There's something going on over here. They rush into the hospital. The hospital starts taking him all these x-rays and cats. They're like, they're doing all, running all these tests. And finally, they, they, you know, they come back and with the results to the parents. And the parent, they go to parents and be like, the doctor goes, can I speak to you to in, in my office? It's like never a good sign. You never want to be in a doctor's office. It's not like, and be like, and you won the hundredth patient of the day, you know? It's, so he sits down there and says, listen, there's, there's no easy way to tell, you know, this, you have a nine-year-old child, but um, he, we found a, a cancerous tumor in his stomach. So the father was like, so, so let's do something about it. You know, like, he's like, this is my only son. He's like, I, we got to do something about this. So he's like, did I tell you the story before? I didn't? Okay, well, look at that. So, um... He, so he goes and he says, and he says, you have to do something for, for, you have to do, you know, whatever you can. He's like, yeah, I know, you know, we're planning it, we're going to bring him to surgery, hopefully we'll be able to go and, um, and, you know, and get, get, get rid of it. So they rush him into surgery. And the father was so nervous about it. He's like, he, he, he called in the best specialist in the world and he says, you know, whatever insurance is paying you, you're getting a bonus for me, double that. Whatever they're paying you, I'm matching it. Make this good. So, you know, money talks. So they, they obviously, you know, they call the, the, um, the, you know, the highest, uh, you know, whatever of the, of the doctors. They come in there and they say, and, and they, and they do the surgery. It's like, a, you know, like an eight hour surgery. They come out and say, you know, can you come into the office again? So he's like, he's like, are you serious? He's like, listen, he says, we took out, we took out the, um, the, you know, the, the tumor, but it's spread in the area. We need to do, we need to do some radiation, some chemo, uh, some treatment that he's going to still need. And let's hope and pray that it's, it's going to work. So they went. Long story short, they went and they and they started this this treatment, and unfortunately, you know, the boy started losing weight, and he started, you know, losing his hair. Um, very difficult for the family, but they were hoping that it was getting uh, better. Suddenly, 
out of like nowhere, um, the, the, you know, all of a sudden the kid starts projectile vomit again and screaming so much in excruciating pain that he couldn't even, he was in a ball. He was in like fetal position and he couldn't even stretch his stomach out. That's how much pain he was. So they rush him straight to, to the hospital. They quickly do the, re, the, you know, all the, the stuff that they could do and uh, the, re, the, whatever they possible and they, um, they call again and again the parents and they said, listen, there is, uh, no easy way for us to tell us to you, he says, you know, um, but, and, the, and the parents, you know, are saying, like, what do you mean? There's no, like, what's going on? And he, so the doctor's like, you know, we, we, we tried really hard, you know, all the treatments that we can possible, um, but we see based on our, and, you know, all the tests that we ran, he says that this, the, the, you know, the can't, it's spread, it's spread everywhere. So they're like, so, so let's just do chemo everywhere. Let's just do it. Like, they didn't understand. So like, let's just, let's just do it. So they're like, I don't think you understand from a medical standpoint, uh, there's nothing that we could do. So the doc, you know, the, the father is like, he's like, what does it mean? There's no such thing as there's nothing to do. And he starts calling up the best doctors in the world, flying them in to check, you know, check his son. And he's paying an arm and leg for all these doctors to fly in. They all say the same thing. He says, listen, he says, you know, we saw the reports. Some of them, they, were, they even heard about him because he kept on calling after everyone said there's nothing, nothing, nothing. He kept on calling everybody and they were like, there's nothing that we can do. Uh, they even said like, we heard about you. We saw the results. There's nothing that can be done. It's stage four. It's terminal. There's nothing you can do. So the father says, what are you telling me? You know, the, no parent could ever hear there's nothing you can do for your child. There's nothing. A parent always needs to be able to do something for the child. So the doctors, they go and they say, listen, he says, you know, all we could tell you to do is, you know, two weeks to a month tops is all that you have, and uh, take him home, let him at least be amongst family, what is he going to be amongst these machines, get him off chemo, it's not going to help, let him, let him enjoy the last, uh, you know, few short, you know, time that he has left over here. And when the parents heard this, they both like fell down, bawling, crying, it's like you can't, what, what is the parents supposed to say about this? So... The, um, you know, not knowing what to do, they enrolled him in something called hospice, which is end of life care. And, uh, they said, you know, take him home and, you know, we'll send doctors, we'll send nurses, we'll try to make him as comfortable as possible. Not having any other choice, you know, the, the boy knew what, what, you know, what was going on. And, uh, they take him, you know, he was in the hospital for, for, you know, quite a, you know, a few weeks. He get, and they, they wheel him out into the car, they put him in the back seat, getting ready to take him, uh, back home. Both parents sit in the front seat and they just, burst into a fresh set of tears, like non uncontrollable crying. Like, what are they? That's it. This is their only child. They're gonna. The doctors basically telling them, "You have you have some time to say goodbye, and that's about it." What do you do for your nine year old? And uh, they, so they, you know, heartbroken. You know, they're sitting there, they're crying in the car, and all of a sudden they hear a little voice in the back. They, you know, like they got so in, enveloped in their crying, they didn't even realize that they was in the back seat. And he jumps up, and they jump up, and they're like, "Oh yeah, they forgot that he was there." And he's like, "He's like, mom, dad." He's like, yeah, yes, my son. He's like, uh, can we, you know, can you do us, do me a favor on the way home? Can we stop by Grandpa's grave? I, you know, I want to pray by by Grandpa's grave. So like, yeah, yeah, of course, that's a great idea. That's a great idea. You know, they, they wipe away the tears and they start driving towards the towards the, the the grave, which was actually on the way home. They gave to they go they get to the graveside. They the father picks up the boy. The boy weighs just skin and bones. You know, he has like a big black yarmulke that's sitting on his you know like you know bald head. And they put him in this wheelchair and they wheel him out to the um, to the grave. And the second that he gets to, to the grave, they see that he's trying to like stand up. And the father runs in and be like, you know, no, no, don't stand up. He saw, and he and he fell down right on top of the grave. Uh, and then like fall down like smack. You know, he actually caught himself on that. And the second that, you know, he, he was laying on the grave over there, the boy started crying. He was always holding it in. He was always trying to be tough and brave for his parents. But this is the first time the parents saw that crying uncontrollably on his grandfather's grave. And all of a sudden after he was able to like let it out a little bit, he was able to stop for, for a few moments. He started speaking to his grandfather. He's like, Grandpa, he says, you know, I love you very much. And he's like, 
I really want to see you. I really do want to see you. Uh, but not just yet. He's like, please, I am begging you. Go to God and pray on my behalf. Please pray. I don't want to go. I don't want to die yet. And the, the, when the parents hearing this, they're like, you know, like waterfalls. They're like crying nonstop. And then the, and then the boy goes on. He says, listen, you know, says grandpa, he says, I, I know I overheard once mommy telling, you know, daddy that I was their gift because mommy can't have any kids. And I was a complete gift from God. Please, grandpa, please pray to God not to take away mommy's gift. And the kid starts crying and crying and crying. And everyone is like, just everyone's like crying in, in the graveside saying something to him and praying. So they finish, they get up and they go home and it was exhausting a few weeks. They go, they go to sleep that night. The father, the, grand, the grandfather comes to his son in a dream. And he, say, and he says, you don't understand what was going on in heaven when you guys were by my grave. He says, when I, when, when I saw my grandson over there, I ran straight into the, you know, I wanted to speak to the, to the heavenly court. I'm like, I'm pleading for this case. He's nine years old. He's like, you can't do this. So I pushed myself in there and they're like, hey, you can't just go in. You got to take a, you know, thing. You're going to speak. No, I'm just kidding. They went, they said, you got, you know, and he said, I pushed my way in and I said, I knew I had a whole thing I was going to say. I'm going to do this and this and then really it's going to be good. You have to, you have to, you know, pleading your case. And I get in front of the judges and all of a sudden I start, you know, pleading my case. But then I, as I start speaking, I'm like, nothing comes out. I was like, mmm. And I, I, I'm like, what's going on? And, I'm, and he's trying to speak again. I was like, mmm. And I went and I felt, and I saw that I didn't have a mouth. And I was like, what's going on over here? And I kept on trying to speak and no words were coming out. The angels took me on the side and they said, listen, he says, the way that you are in this world is the way that you're going to be in the next world. If you misused your, your certain body part in this world, it's going to be defected in the next world. He says, I misused my mouth. I didn't speak the way I was supposed to. I didn't pray the way I was supposed to. I didn't answer amen the way I was supposed to. He says, I spoke Lashon Aram. He says, I don't have a mouth. I, I can't help you over here. He says, there's nothing that I could do. He says, but I'll tell you what you could do. He says, you don't know the secret power of brachot and when you say amen. He says, the numerical value of amen is 91, the same numerical value of malach, an angel. When you go and when you say amen, every single time you create an angel. Any good that you, you create an angel. Now this angel is a defense attorney for you up in heaven. So what you need to do is you got to focus on this thing for as long as you can. Say amen, make bachot, have people come in, focus on tefillah, focus on your mouth, do good things with your mouth, and make sure, make sure to say a lot, a lot of amens, and hopefully that will give you maybe enough to like tilt the scales a little bit. And this, the father, the father wakes up. He wakes up, you know, he wakes up his wife. He's like, we got to say amen. She's like, what are you talking about? He's like, he's like, and he like spills out the whole details. He goes to his son. He tells him what he dreamed. But it was like, you know, such a vivid dream. And the son took it into, into, you know, such concern. He says, I want you to invite my whole class. Everybody, you know, I want them to come visit me. This is, you know, like a nine-year-old kid's death wish. Everybody's coming. And they all come. And he had set up every single bracha. From Hagefen to Haetz to Mizonot, every single bracha. This kid took it so seriously. Every time that, that someone came in, he wouldn't be like, everybody, he says, one person at a time is making a bracha. And he's like, and they make a bracha, and you see this little kid is like clenches his tiny little hands, and he closes his eyes, and then with all like, he's, after he finishes the bracha, he screams out, he's like, amen! Like this, like a little kid like squeals out, amen, every single time. Doesn't care, everyone's laughing at him, no one's laughing at him, but he's like, he doesn't care about anybody else, takes it so seriously. And, after everybody makes bachot, they're about to be like, oh, wait. He didn't say the, the you know, bachach or not. You gotta say, you gotta say, Alamichia. And then again, he would say, amen. And the parents took this on, and it was literally like a community project. Two weeks go by, and, you know, the nurses are coming, the doctors are coming, you know, status quo. Four weeks go by, and, you know, the parents, now they're getting nervous. So this is, you know, where they said, five weeks go by, and the five weeks turn into eight weeks, and all of a sudden, you know, it's three months later. So they're like, you know, they're not complaining, but they go to the doctors and be like, you know, 
what's, can we maybe run some more tests? And the doctor is also surprised, three months, it's really, you know, so they bring, they, they bring him in for some more tests, and they see, they compare the tests that they had to the previous one, to the test that they have now, and they're like, this is ridiculous, this is crazy. So they, they call in the, the to this time the doctor is a little bit smiling, he says, listen, he says, I don't want to get your hopes high, because like, nothing has improved. Nothing at all has improved, but at the same point, nothing has deteriorated. The results are like exactly the same. There's like, you know, we expect it to deteriorate as time goes by, but these are, the results are exactly the same. We can't explain this. So the father's like, I could explain it. And he like smirks and he like leaves. And I was like, what's happening? And, so, and, it, and the father goes in and now he sees that it's working. He's like, we're doubling it. Like they started making like campaign of Bahot and Amein like out there. Like they took this like to a whole nother level. Three months go into four months, which turns into six months. They bring him out for more testing. And they go into more testing, and they see somehow, the doctors have no idea. The cancer is still there, but it's just ever so slightly, just a little bit less. They, they can't explain it. They don't know what is going on. They, I, we don't know. We can't explain it. And we don't really don't want to give your hopes up, because even as of now, as it stands, he still doesn't have that much time left to live. Uh, but they still give him the same like four or five weeks that he has left to live every time that he comes. And he started coming as routine. And they kept on branching this out greater and greater and greater. Two years go by, he does his final test, and he was, you know, completely, you know, cancer-free. Completely, uh, you know, cancer-free. This is the power that we have. This is the power of prayer, the power that we have on Yom Kippur. The power that we have is you're standing in front of your Father in heaven. He is willing to do it, and he wants to give you anything. He's just like, you just got to give me some more malachim, some more defense to angels on your side. We have such a powerful day coming up. We have to do so many things, but then at the same time, we just have to focus on a few things. We have to do the tshuva. We have to come back to God. We have to go into full repentance, confess, regret, and obviously vow not to do this in any, you know, anymore. But most importantly, this is the day of connecting to God. This is your Father in Heaven. This is your Father who wants to, He's, He's urging you. He just wants you there. And all you gotta do is come to Him. Shuva alayva, shuva lachem. Return to me, and I will return to you. And Bezad Hashem, may we return to God, and may we have this tremendous, amazing, successful Yom Kippur that will be sealed for a life of amazingness, and a year of amazingness, of Bachot, Bachot, Mazal, and only good things, Bezad Hashem. You've just experienced another Torah class, brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.